With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Most glorious advert for the five-day game, said Michael Atherton, when Ben (laughs) Stokes took the 10th South African wicket late on day five at Cape Town. What a start to 2020. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly podcast. As well as talking about England's second test win in South Africa, we'll be going all in on the four-day test debate, as well as Australia's third test win over New Zealand. Before we start the show, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener to the show, we'd like to reward you with just that, free beer. (laughs) Thanks to our friends at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash wisdom and cover just $4.95 for the postage. What's more, Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast listeners get two extra free beers, so that's a total of 10 free beers. We've ordered them into the office. It's genuinely a brilliant deal, so go to beer52.com forward slash wisdom to get your special offer. That sounds very good, doesn't it? You do that so so well, Yaz, it makes me really want a beer. Only a whiff of partridge to it as well. (laughs) Well, anyway, I'm Yaz Rana, and with me today is the editor-in-chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine, Phil Walker, the magazine editor of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine, Joe Harmon, and Wisdom's Ben Gardner. Afternoon, Yaz. It's Hello, been quite Yaz. a good day. Hasn't it just? We're recording just after England have beaten South Africa, so we're on a bit of a high at the moment. There was a, there was a comment from one of our Instagram followers, Speedster59, who said, just when you face. think he can't do... Speedster 158, all taken, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just when you think he can't do anything more, he does it. Stand up for Ben Stokes. Absolute genius. I thought you were going to say Dom Sibley there. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, um, Stokes was absolutely superb with bat, ball and in the field again. Yeah. My, my, my moment from the match, apart from obviously the finisher, was uh, his five catches in the first innings. Just another record there. You know, just, just throw, throw that. Yeah, another world record. Throw that one on the pile. More than any other England outfielder, is that right? English outfielder yep. ever. Yeah. Uh, and the range of the the range of those catches as well were just uh, just ridiculous. And he couldn't um, be bothered with the easy ones, could he? You no. Know, you know, that, that, that was, that no. Was but by that point, he was standing basically on the batsman's <laughs> yeah. toes. Uh, and uh, it was almost like the the force of character thing was at work with Stokes. He was the ball was magnetically drawn to him, you know. And even on the third morning when they came back, he still took that fifth catch. Uh, he is irrepressible. I get all things wrong, as you know, in terms of predictions, but it felt like Stokes' way to finish this game, and with an hour and a half to go... You called we, it. We, we, did, we did say in the office, you know, if, if they can just get rid of Van der Dusen, who is a good-looking young player, then then Stokes just barges through that lower order, sheer force of will, character, the whole lot. Um, he continues to, to write his own scripts and take it just one step higher uh, week after week at this rate, it seems. Joe Nasser called it Joe Root's best test as captain do you buy that um i guess nasa's point is at, literally as a captain rather yeah. than the best win under his captaincy uh yeah i think that's probably fair given what's gone on in this series so far it really obviously we are a little bit biased here but it really felt 
like England deserved this one after everything that's gone gone so far on this tour with the even if some of it is of their own making the Rory Burns injury you could say perhaps well, I'm not going to get into that football argument but all the illness that obviously affected them in the first test the the critical illness to Ben Stokes's dad um I, re- I really felt for Joe Root in the first test match and he looked well he looked like what he was which was very ill but he looked like he was not really enjoying it and it was great to see him on the final session today kind of whipping his arms up trying to get the crowd behind him it looked like he was really enjoying himself as as test captain not for the first time but one of the few times I've seen as, as test captain he was really buoyant at the end for it, the first it, time in a long time it was great I mean they had some really good wins in, in Sri Lanka uh, and then a couple of Ashes wins this summer but given that this is the second test of a four test series is now all up for grabs I think I think you can make that argument I think for me as well Joe Root's best quality as captain is that ability to keep the England side together even when it's not going that well I mean we talk a lot about their ability to bounce back from defeat and this I mean this could really descend into being one of the all-time horror tours with everyone going down ill for the first test as you say Roy Burns almost like well the most informed batsman and the the one you'd back most to stick around getting that like just bizarre freak injury a day out from a test match England fielded what four players under the age of 22 which is the first time they've ever done that like it's a a really a, a really impressive win for them to do that and although I mean we still are going to have the questions about Joe Root's like tactics as a captain. Those sorts of going to, I think they're going to keep cropping up. I think we can't forget that so little of test captains is actually about where you place your fielders and the bowlers you choose to bowl each particular over. And it is about keeping a group together. And I think Joe Root is actually deserves more credit for that than he gets, I think. I think that's a good point, actually. And when you look through history as well at leaders in, in test match cricket teams, the the amount of stories of dramas behind the scenes power struggles uh, attempts to try and you know take a coup on the captain and so on there's no doubt that that for all the all the question marks that legitimately hang around Joe's captaincy tenure and specifically the runs that he that he's churning out with the bat and how that affects uh, his batsmanship you're absolutely right. They all run in for him, uh, and they are all united around him. There is the the question of Archer, the, the 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 enigma that is Archer, and how how Joe's captaincy will will work alongside him. But you know that's for another day, I would say. And um, yeah, I think that's a very fair and good point. And they would be appalled in the dressing room by any question uh, that that Roots Roots time may have been up. Um, that Root Stokes axis seems to work really well as well. And the, there's actually a really good interview that. Um, NASA and Atherton did with Root over the course of the, the test match that they were showing um, and one of the questions was to, to Root when when you're feeling a bit low or you feel like you're not sure of something who do you go to and he said instantly Stokes instantly he'll tell me he'll, he'll tell it how it is but he'll also be sympathetic enough that you don't feel away coming like shit basically to, to, to paraphrase him and whatever you make of this England test side and there are obviously still failings and this victory today doesn't change a lot of that those two seem to work really well together in a way that I can't necessarily think of a captain and vice captain almost sharing the job and that's perhaps a bit unfair on on Root who is obviously captain but there does seem to be a kind of sharing of responsibilities there which works works well in in the way they do it. There's something that's striking me as well about Stokes the more that he plays for England in test cricket that if you you were to compare him to Botham's career and and Flintoff's career uh, they were on the turn in going into the second half of their careers they would both admit that and there were reasons for it. It's not a criticism necessarily. Both of them had, you know, catastrophic back injuries and so on. But uh, Stokes is becoming a better cricketer 
whereas the other two were on the wane by this point. Uh, Stokes is becoming almost the complete Test match batsman now, um, who can who can play slow, who can play low heartbeat cricket, and obviously take the game away from you. And he did it amazingly well on that that fourth morning. Uh, but now with the ball as well, he's bowling in a in an equivalent way to how Flintoff did in that that two year period. Force of will, barnstorming spells when no one else gets near him. Uh, and what Botham did in the first few years of his career as well, it, it, Botham would, would drive Test match wins single handedly in those early years, uh, and this is what this is what Stokes is doing now. It, it's just a, a terrifying package, really. I think for me, he's actually England's most versatile Test bowler in that the although he can't do any of the things really as well as some of the other members of England's attack, he can do all those things just like when needed. He can sort of when it's swinging, he can like take six foot with a with a swinging ball. He can run in and bowl bouncers for five overs if that's what he's asked to do. Or he can bowl these, as you say, these kind of just force of will things where he's just kind of like scaring the opposition batsman out. He can kind of... And, it, and it, I think he also knows when to do each one as well. I mean, that, that innings on the on the, on the the fourth morning when he uh, just came out and smashed mm. 70 in no time, which gave them the time to, to secure the win late on day five. And he knew even because at that point, England were actually that far ahead in the game they were what they were 260 ahead I think when he it came wasn't in in the balance but, but, but you know a good session by South Africa and they could have chased down 300 the did. pitch was flattening out and you saw that and he, and he picked the right moment to go for that assault and take it out of reach and leave him enough time to, to n- get the not, win you're exactly right also just not even for a scintilla of a moment did Stokes think oh I might get England's fastest 100 here it just wasn't relevant to him you know, he was just having some fun. He was playing his shots, and if he held, if he hold out, then so be it. Uh, his reading of, of a cricket game now, I think, is 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 top top notch. You we, me and you spoke about that actually, and you you weren't quite as in agreement with me on that um, a couple of days ago. But I think his reading of of the situation, his gameplay, I think, is now excellent. In, no, in all yeah, I, uh, the the point I was making at the time was that if he had got out cheaply, batting the way that he he was, given that he got out playing uh, a shot he didn't need to in quite soft fashion in the first innings. England, having lost two wickets right at the end of day three, would have been in a bit of a tricky situation. Um, but I think on, on, on Stokes' bowling, I think a lot of people look at his numbers and be like, oh, he averages 33, that's not that special. But Stokes only really bowls when England are desperate for a wicket, when it's really, really difficult to get wickets. And I think that that is often forgotten. And also, he's so underused by England with the ball sometimes. Like in the first Test match, he should have bowled, he should have bowled way he's more. He's an attacking bowler. So he sets yeah. attacking fields, which is demanded by the style of bowler that he is. And, and when England needed. Um, I think one thing that you said, Ben, which I think is really, really important when looking at this England win, the, the, the stat you said about this is the first time England have ever fielded a test lineup with four players who are under the age who are 22 or under and then you've also got Dom Sibley playing his fourth test at 24 and they all contributed in one way or another Dom Bess uh, yes he only got a couple of wickets over the test match but he probably exceeded expectations in the first innings he was entrusted with a third of England's overs before the second new ball came it's a really good example of um, when you look back at scorecards and you say oh someone's taken what he's taken what two for about 150 130 yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and a pair uh, <laughs> when people look back on that in a few years oh, just another test, a rubbish test match for an English spinner overseas well actually the job he did particularly in the first innings was, was really crucial in that, and we're just talking about on the way over here that wicket of Elgar at that point South Africa looked like they were just going to grind England down into the dust and then mm. nick him off in the second innings and job done. And then Ollie Pope hit a really important first inning 61, not out. England were looking at 210 all out in the first innings uh, before he played that knock. Sam Curran who is actually the youngest person in the team, uh, despite feeling like a relative veteran. He took only three wickets in the test match, but again, they were all of set batsmen. 
It was he, a he very takes top order wickets, Sam. Curry. Yeah, and that's time a cock, after time. That's a cock first innings wicket was mm. massive again in the context of the game, mm. and a brilliant bit of bowling as well. You know, just yeah. run the fingers over it. Whether de Kock was uh, kind of duped into playing that shot, or whether he was a bit overconfident playing it, who can say? But that was another crucial moment in in this Test match, and he keeps doing it time after time. Yeah, yeah. and it's, you, you tweeted about his uh, his overseas average. Is it this winter that he's averaging less than thirty with the ball and has bowled more than broad in that time? Like he's he's becoming yeah. a bowler that Root trusts as well. And although because you sort of you still look at him and think like, how is he getting these wickets or? How he's getting these runs? He's not actually been in the best form of the bat since since 2018, really. Uh, but he, yeah, just is becoming increasingly hard to leave out. And I think I think Bess and Curran are both giving him a real headache for the the next test, I guess. Yeah, so. Curran is England's leading wicket taker this winter, and he's played in every test match as as has Broad and Root is bowled Curran more, which is not something I think many people would have expected before the series. You, you also mentioned Pope. It's not news that he's a good young player, but in the context of the game, if England had been bundled out for 210, they'd have lost this game, mm. I think. Uh, they'd have been so down. But that last hour on day one uh, actually gave them a bit more of a lift and they got in the way for 20 minutes the morning after, got up to 270-odd, and suddenly it's a it's a NAF score, but it's a just about adequate score and you can allow them to get 300 and then you're in the game. Without that knock by Pope, uh, England would have been in the clarts, frankly. And and it was it was impressive how mature he looked, how he changed gears when he had to, how he recognised and had the ability and aptitude to change gears as well. Uh, I like a lot that lineup, that four five six seven lineup. I like it a lot. I like the fact that he is at six as a as a proper old fashioned timeless run scorer accumulator between those two diamonds in Stokes and Butler and obviously with Root kicking it all off I like that middle order a lot and how good is that middle order going to be if you get a top three with some stability who can actually stick around for a while even if they're not getting hundreds we were discussing this the other day again Denley's still waiting for that hundred but he's playing a massive role at number three eight of his last 12 innings he's batted for 100 deliveries or more you can't ask for much more from your England number three at the moment, given what, what's gone before him. Mm. Yeah, how, how impressed were you by Sibley? It's his first Test century. He was under, uh, bizarrely, given that he'd only played three Test matches, there was a lot of criticism of his technique, more so than you normally expect for somebody who's and just more batted than five times. Well. Yeah, tiny sample size. Yeah, no, exactly. And he's he's um, he's responded in, in magnificent fashion. How, how much of a chance do you reckon he's got of really nailing that spot? Because uh, Nick Compton, Sam Robson, Adam Lyth, Keaton Jennings, they all scored 100 in their first five test matches. Do you think Sibley's got more of a chance of nailing down that spot than those four? Well, the thing that Sibley's got, which all the rest came in with runs behind them, but not the volume of runs or the number of deliveries faced that Sibley has. And, and whatever you think about his technique, that should command more respect than it received, particularly on social media and among some people who have played some test matches as well. I, I can't believe that they're willing to jump on him so quickly and say that you can't score runs in test cricket with that technique. Because for me, I, I wouldn't have been confident enough to say he's going to have a brilliant test career. But why don't we just wait and see? Why don't we actually give him a chance to to come good? And I, I think we all, on an earlier podcast, said pretty much whatever happens, let's give him this South Africa series. Perhaps not expecting him to go all that well, but thinking it'll be a valuable learning curve. Mm. So for him in the second test of this series to have scored uh, what was really a, a magnificent 100 in, in its in its own way to, to bat through the innings. Um, bat, batted well in the first innings as well. We started to see some of the offside stroke play that hadn't really been visible so far in his, his test career. I thought it was interesting. He said, he admitted that in New Zealand, a lot of the chat about his technique had got to him. He was aware of it in the media and that it started playing some shots that he wouldn't have done for Warwickshire. So he was, mm. he was playing at balls that he would have left alone. 
and he said he really had to just try and blank all that out um, and just go back to what the way he had played for Warwickshire. And now that sounds the simplest thing in the world, but it's obviously not that simple. And it's probably not something that's that easy to do unless you've played quite a lot of county cricket, which he has now. I mean, he's, he's only 24, but he's played, what, six or seven seasons of, of county cricket. Yeah, I thought one of the more valid criticisms, obviously, was that obviously he has this game that relies very much on scoring runs through the leg side and that maybe at test level you don't get enough bad balls to just rely on balls on your pads. Um, and then if, and he hadn't really shown that he had a cover drive in his first couple of tests at least. But he showed in, in his 100 that as, as he got more confident, he does actually have those shots. On day three, he scored more than half his runs on the offside. That's, and also I think... Some, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, and, and also uh, when people say, oh, he's very good off his legs, I, he's, he's amazing off his legs. So a lot of these balls he's taking through mid-wicket are outside off stump, which makes him quite a hard bowler to bowl at. And if you look at... The, the the dismissals he's had through the winter, two of them were dreadful shots against spin bowlers, two of them were against snorters from Rabada, and he would just never have faced a bowl like Rabada on pitches that he's he's paid on. So I think the early signs are pretty encouraging. I thought e- even before even before the hundred. Also, it's difficult to argue it both ways. On the one hand, people are saying county cricket is basically useless in, in providing test players because it's so hard to score runs and bat time that no one's having an opportunity to do it. Well, Sibley's managed to score huge amounts of runs, batted huge amounts of time in county cricket. So if you can do it in those conditions, I know they're different to test cricket, but if you can do them in challenging conditions, why can't he do it on good pitches against admittedly better bowlers? But he's got the best chance of anyone in county cricket bar Rory Burns, and we've seen what Rory Burns has done at the top of the order. I think when he gets to Sri Lanka, I think that'll be another challenge for yeah. him. He doesn't look like a natural player of spin bowling. But then Alistair Cook never looked like a natural player of spin bowling, whatever that word means, really. Uh, he played Maharaj better and better as the second innings went on. Maharaj didn't bowl well in the second innings, having bowled beautifully, I thought, on day one. Uh, but he he also opened his shoulders as well. There, there are get-out shots there for him that all modern players have, even those as traditionally minded, if you like, as Dom Sibley. Um, but as I said to you, I think yesterday morning, the key thing for me is that he plays the short ball uh, effectively and well. He, he's helped by his size. He's he's able to play with a straight bat. Uh, those deliveries that would otherwise be cannoning into his into his rib cage. It's a really bizarre arm, shot. It's it basically is, but it's a very very would pull it. it's a very very effective one. And they were bowling right arm round to him into the ribs, and he was drilling it with a straight bat through square leg, just behind square, just in front. Um, he'll score a lot of runs with that technique. But crucially, I think, if and when he were to go to Australia, I would f- <coughs> excuse me, I would fancy that he would have half a chance of, of weathering that, that pace attack. Not getting boatloads of runs necessarily, but doing the job that this team is obviously crying out for, which we all know, which is to bat time and soak up some of the game. I think he will have half a chance of that. I have, I'm less secure with, with Rory Burns in, in, in Australia. Um, I think I fear that he will be bombed mercilessly, but then he he works things out. So I'm not by any means saying he will go badly, but but I think Sibley has the setup. I would rather see an opening batsman uh, getting out to a full ball slightly outside off stump, where he's just trying to find his way in the game, than, than a batsman who is bounced out or hook or out hooking or out pulling his head away from the ball. That's when alarm bells <coughs> are ringing. Uh, I don't see that at all with him. Yeah, I think I think what we see with Sibley and with Burns and even with Denley as well is players who are just improving with time at the top level. I, th- I think actually England is sometimes criticised unfairly for <coughs> jettisoning players at the top of the order. They, they do tend to give players quite a lot of time, but I think you do 
need to give them that time even when it looks like they're kind of like it's kind of like a lamb to the slaughter because like the you you won't know until players are kind of like almost on their last chance and how they respond to that how they cope with a challenge that seems to have worked them out and find a way to deal with that and that's the challenge of test batting you know it's not at the start of your career that'll kind of keep happening to these players as Phil says with Roy Burns the short but he's going to have to find a maybe way to either score of it or to get out of the way effectively but I think that's the that's the key challenge and that's the thing to to remember is that there's there is going to be kind of a progression for pretty much all players I mean even Ollie Pope came in in the India series and sort of slightly flattered to see at first and now like even though he's like people saying he's the if if he'd come in and sort of looked less at home than he had, you wonder what people would be saying. But he like, like everyone needs to be given that chance about how well they've done mm. at County Devil. Like you you can't say they've been worked out that quickly. I think it's just unfair. We're also getting to the point in terms of openers, there are none left. Yeah. So like if you if you say that well, Sibley's not good enough, well then who who are you saying is good enough? I mean there are really, I think the seventeen have been selected to open since Strauss's retirement now. So do we start going through them again? Well, it's, it's a fair point. So in the well, Roy Burns is injured. Uh, He's out for the next four months. He will miss the rest of this series and England's tour to Sri Lanka. England haven't named a replacement for him for the South Africa series. If you look at the Lions squad, the three openers picked are Sibley, Crawley and Keaton Jennings. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's not it's not clear who the next man would be um, if he did make a change. It seems like Jennings will, will go to Sri Lanka from Looks what like everyone's... It, yeah. But then I can't see them picking him in a home series, mm. really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like exactly what we said at the start of last year. Great time to be a young opener or yeah. a young top-order batsman. Um, England seemed to be quite close to nailing a top seven. The other day in the office, Phil, you weren't totally convinced by by Denley? Right, obviously Denley has done great to get to this point. Uh, has he overachieved or has he just uh, shown his class? That's up for debate. Uh, I was just looking forward to the next five test matches... And if Denny continues to bounce along in a similar vein to up to now, i.e. the odd telling innings, but a score of between 50 and 100, and a couple of 30s in there and the odd failure, i.e. not ineffective, but not definitive either. If he continues to bounce along like that for the next two or three games and, and you get to the end of a winter, and he would therefore have played, I think, 18 test matches, maybe 19, uh, and that there isn't that hundred, and he's a top order player. Uh, then you can't. No one can convince anybody that he has nailed down that position. And with his age as well as a as a con, as a consideration, you move into next summer with uh, that that place arguably certainly not nailed down and probably up for grabs. Uh, I really like watching Joe Denley, and I like the fact that he has a circuitous way to have got to the England team. I like him as a, as a character. It brackets Joe Armand done a brilliant interview with him um, in in the current magazine of, of Wisdom Creek Monthly. He is um, a far more interesting and colourful character than a lot of young English a lot of English cricketers that come through. That said, uh, his record in first class cricket is not overwhelmingly persuasive. He's thirty four years old. Um, he fits into this team as of now, but the big tour is next year, India five test matches then of course Australia comes around quite quickly after that and and we are looking while he has been the best option for the last year and a half and has, has done done brilliantly at three we are looking for a number three that we can hang our hat on eventually arguably we've been looking for that for a decade and more which is why he absolutely deserves all the plaudits that are coming his way but I look down that order and I look at four five six seven and I'm comfortable with that and if there's an injury then Bearstow can come back into that side and so on 
and we, we look like we have an opener, opening pair. Uh, once Burns is back fit, and Crawley can be your first reserve, and so on and so on. The number three, as of yet, is is ill-defined, and his his Test career is ill-defined as well. You know, the, the first innings I said to Joe at the time, it's a really important innings for him because he looked good in the last Test, made a fifty odd, made a fifty in New Zealand. The 90 at the Oval, he's beginning to move that way and then he missed a straight ball from Maharaj, a nothing delivery, first afternoon, day one, missed a nothing delivery. Frustrating that dismissal, really. Um, When you're 34, you don't get that many chances, I don't think. So I think the next three or four games are important for him to try and just nail that defining innings and then see if you can build on that from there on. Yeah, for for me, I mean, I think it's it's somewhere between nailed down and up for grabs. I think that like uh I think he's he's probably more secure now than he was in his place at the end of last winter when he still kept his position in the side for the start of that summer, but I think that I don't I don't I don't think you can uh you can just take lightly the fact that he has looked comfortable at this level and considering the struggles even though he's not nailing down those place those uh like the big runs, he is sort of he is still definitely doing a job for England. Obviously, he's not going to have nailed down the spot if he's not getting hundreds, if he is getting between 30 and 70, kind of basically every time he goes out to bat with the odd failure. But I think unless someone comes in and scores absolutely loads of runs that county season to sort of like force their way into that side, I think that he remains the man in possession until he kind of catastrophically loses form. And I, I, don't, I, think, I don't think he can have a need to go and look out the way that he's done at the it, moment. The way that he's done it is is the biggest feather in his cap so far, the way that he's looked and the time that he's taken out of games. And, and also the fact that he's got better so if you think when when he first started, there were so many people saying, "Well, he just he just can't play Test cricket. He's just not good enough." Now those people seem to have quietened down a bit. It's more, can he kick on and get that big score? But the improvement has actually been quite dramatic. And the point Rob Key made to, made to me was that Denley is able to play in lots of different ways depending on the situations. However good young county batsmen are out there, they haven't developed those skills yet. And particularly for this slightly vulnerable or very vulnerable in some ways England side I think those those skills are invaluable and they've already paid off at, at Headingley I mean that without that 50 that was England wouldn't have won that test match the the career swung on that his short career so far swung on that innings definitely yeah I think a lot of a lot of people had him dropped after Lords um and that innings was the first moment where you looked at him and you thought in a proper pressure cooker situation you know, against a proper team, he could actually pull it off, and and I would love to see him build on that. I would love to see it. I think it swung on the on that actually the Stokes innings as well, and just the fact that England won that game. If England lose that game and they go down two 0 in the series, and they've sort of lost the Ashes after like at the first possible opportunity, uh, then I think they start. They, they, there's more of a shake of the Test side because it's more of a disaster. Yeah, possibly that's probably, possibly a fair shout. Um, and I think I think that's almost part of the perception with Denley is that like. Although he's looked the part at test level, you can't. There isn't that body of work for people to point back on. So when it's like when he's not getting the big runs here, and he's not getting, the, he's not had the big runs in counter cricket. It's almost like people are saying like, well, maybe one of these other guys who kind of had the same sort of record when Denley came into the test yeah. side could do the same thing. But I think that, but that's that's why it is so important that Denley has looked the part, and you can't take for granted that someone is gonna look the part like that just because they have like a similar counter record and kind of quite quite a lot of county runs over quite a long yeah, time. Two, two things I'll say to that. Number one, he averaged more than any other number three batsman in Division 1 last season. He averaged 56 in the county championship. Number two, it's my favourite stat of the winter, Joe Root has only come in, in before the 25th over twice this winter. We all agree that England's number four, five, six, seven is is their strength in their batting. That is brilliant for England if they can keep coming in in the second, even third session of the day. I think as long as that can happen, that's great. Um, 
Other bits of injury news from England, Joffre Archer and Mark Wood have been declared fit for the third test. They're struggling to get into they're struggling to get a fit eleven on, on the park for the first test and now they have eight bowlers to choose from, although Anderson at the time <laughs> of recording is is an injury concern. Joe, who 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 are your foot four bowlers for the for the third test? Uh it's a very difficult one, isn't it? And Jack Leach is fit. We, we believe think. so, yeah. Yeah, well I would all right, we'll start with the seamers. I think Anderson was walking around very gingerly and didn't didn't bowl at all in that final session. He I think Audrey at the right at the start. With the with the second new ball, which one over, actually, one over, one over yeah. yeah, one over with the second new ball. Might bob one over after tea as well, actually. Okay, yeah, maybe two after tea. If Anderson is fully fit, then I would stick with the same seam attack as this Test match. But I don't think he will be, uh, so I would bring an archer for for Anderson. Keeping Bess in? No, I think I would go for Leach rather than Bess. I think Bess has done really well in this Test match, uh, but Leach is still England's first choice spinner in the absence of Mo and Ali, uh, and I don't think Bess has done quite enough to change that um, and I think we've got a, talking about giving Sibley enough opportunities to, to know either way there is a test opener I think the same is true of Jack Leach we've also got a tour of Sri Lanka just around the corner uh, not that I'm saying we we're preparing for Sri Lanka but we also want our first choice spinner getting lots of overs under his and belt and, and actually opportunities in test match cricket yeah I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that Leach averages less than 30 in test cricket which is historically very very good for an English spinner um, a lot has been made of the first test in New Zealand where New Zealand got 600 but I feel like any English finger spinner is, is going to get figures of 2 for 100 in, on a pitch like that and it was so flat even Watling got runs well <laughs> although I think Decock proved why he shouldn't be in uh, exactly. yeah, the decade we had yeah, that yeah. conversation just so you <laughs> didn't refer to our previous podcast we've had yeah. that conversation <laughs> yeah. yeah firmly team Watling man of the yeah. match in the first yeah. game of course but hey ho Man of the match, Watley was man of the match the first game. Sure, in sure. Yeah. yeah, it's a private joke. It's probably not, not appropriate for the podcast anyway. Let's move on. Not appropriate. <laughs> well, not joke, relevant not to this particular podcast. discussion. All right, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really torn on the on the best Leach one, especially because, I mean, I, I, I agree that Leach, in, in, as, as a spinner, holds the edge over best. But I think that uh, the... I don't know how much better Leach would have done on the fifth day uh, today than Best did. Best looked reasonably toothless on the, on the on the fifth day, but I think you are picking a spinner in South Africa to do that holding role. And which Leach does well. Yeah, Leach does do it well, but but but, but Best did it well as well. And if England are confident, he can kind of do that same thing he did in the first innings again. I know Best did make a pair this time, but England's and it's it's such a, a boring reason to have to pick a. a tail and a bowling attack especially especially when the choice isn't just best over leech but best over really one of archer or broad but i do think that that the fact that he you should you should be thinking he can get you 30 rounds a test match that could be huge for for england especially when it is a kind of a a sort of a dogfight of a series with first inning scores around 250 that that could be crucial. So, but if you're looking for someone to stick around with, say, Stokes or Butler, then mm. Leach has proven himself to be better than any other English tail ender at doing that. Yeah, that that, that that's that's so a technically good... he looks far better than Broad and Archer at the moment. Yeah, that's true. I think I think thinking back to the Pakistan series uh, at the start of 2018, I still would back Bess more than Leach. I, t- I, I do take your point. I, th- I think if I think he is a he is still a best batsman. Oh, he's definitely more talented, but in terms of doing that job in in Test cricket. I think Leach has got an amazing um, mentality for that. Surprisingly, so yeah. I, uh, given t- his given his lack of talent, I mean, yeah, mentality possibly. I mean, uh, the, I guess the situations when Leach has made runs have actually been sort of easy for batting. It was a tough bowling attack against Australia, but the pitch had flattened out at that point, and you are going to get some tougher batting conditions here, where Bess is 
technical skills might be possibly more to the fore. I know Le- Leach does have a very good forward defensive, but I would still give Best the the slight edge. So I think I I, w- I would slightly err towards Best, but I could very easily be talked around them. Don't hold any opinions that strongly, really. Well, uh, um, Le- Leach is just right, well, we'll so just much. Bit out then. Le- Leach is just <laughs> a much much better bowler Obviously. than than, than, than Best. It's not Obviously. even close, is it? No, it's not even a like, debate. I mean, Best did way better than people expected in the first innings. That doesn't mean he bowled incredibly. It's I think people's expectations were very, very low. Spinner. Exactly. And also because of how he did when he first came to the team, he didn't look anywhere near a test bowler. And to his credit, he did look better this time round. Promising signs for Sri Lanka as well. Yeah, the best yeah. can come in and be a second or even a third spinner yeah. in that side. Uh, but Leach is, is well versed at winning test, uh, sorry, not test matches, county matches for Somerset on a final day. And that's got to mean something. Best, is always been support to Leach, mm-hmm. uh, and we want to, yeah, want to. And Leach got four for forty nine in the last uh, Asher Test at the Oval in the fourth innings, and even at Somerset, Best quite often bowls behind Van der Merwe. He's their third spinner mm. quite often. So I think for Best to suddenly be England's first choice spinner, I, th- I, th- I don't, th- I don't think he's right. But the, the, that question wasn't really supposed to be about Best versus Leach. It was supposed to be uh, about the pace bowlers. Uh, so Ben, who who would you choose? Uh, I. Th- I think I would go with Joffre Archer and James Anderson sticking with Sam Curran. Play, playing the drop broad card. Well, it's just like, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it, you've got to drop one of them, basically. I mean, it's, it's again, I think it might be slightly the easy option to not pick Joffre Archer because he's injured and therefore not the one currently in the side. I, I think I would, I think that gives you a more rounded attack with those three. And I think that, I mean, jo- Joffre Archer for all the, we still can't really work it, work him out as like a as a character a bit. Can't work out why sometimes he bowls fast and sometimes he bowls fast medium. But he does have two Ashes sixes and three fivers in his first what six games. It's a, it's already a formidable record despite us not having seen the best of him. I think he is a a, a generational talent, and I think you you you. I know I know that Broad and Anderson are also both generational talents, and it's and it. it I mean, but maybe not. This it sums one. up the weirdness of this England side, isn't it? That they're still a massively flawed Test team, and we're talking about having to drop one of <laughs> Archer, Broad, or Anderson, who are each in their own way unbelievable cricketers. Yeah, I mean, do we know what the Port Elizabeth pitch is supposed to be like? I, I had a quick look. There's not been an enormous amount of success for spin bowlers there in the last three or four years. I was going to say, I said it in the last podcast. I'd pick a four-man seam attack. I think. Curran, Archer, Anderson, Broad, they all offer something different. And also Denley and Root both bowled pretty well, actually. And you've got Stokes as well. Five. Yeah. And you've got Stokes as well. So. That's loads well, well, of bowling. Well, yeah. that, that, would be, that would be my team for Port Elizabeth. Great. Uh, yeah. Um, you have to get Archer back in there personally, I think. You know, he's just, just marvellous. Um, and we everybody said before the start of the series, this is going to be a key series for Archer. The extra pace in South Africa is so critically important. Blah, blah, blah. So if he's fit, properly fit, then I would want to get him back in there. If Anderson's injured, would he be tempted to put in Mark Wood? Um, I know they say he's fit, but I just, I don't know if I really buy that, to be honest. Based on what? Won't it? When was the last time he played a first-class game? The last test match he played, right? It would be a big gamble, ago. I think, to go in with a Archer. A massive Andy gamble. Wood. I mean, I suppose if you had enough bowlers in there, which you would if you're not playing the spinner, then you could perhaps get away with it, but... I don't know. It's, this is the problem with outing a, with no tour game after the, apart from the ones before the first test. I can't really see how Wood could ever get himself in the mm. test side, and that's why I wouldn't have picked him for this squad in the first place. Yeah, just very, very briefly on the spinner thing. Root and Denley looked more dangerous than Best did uh, on day five. Denley induced more false shots. 
Uh, Root is a very, very useful part-time spinner. Um, and I don't think he would bowl so many bad balls that it'd be rendered uh, impossible for him to be used in that mm. first innings when you are looking to tie up an end uh, and do the best-like job. So I think the, the value of going in with those seamers outweighs the, the, the value of having mm. a spinner. Just quickly on the series as a whole as well, that um, I thought the start of the series, given that we've England have basically played at the two South African fortresses, Centurion and Newlands. South Africa have got brilliant, brilliant records there. And I thought before the start of the series, if they can get away at one all or even one down, then they weren't in too bad a position. And now I th- it's because South Africa's record at Wanderers is not particularly strong at all, surprisingly so, given it's seen as the kind of the ball ring and that intimidating atmosphere, and it's kind of iffy at Port Elizabeth. So to get away from those first two venues level in the series, England done actually a, a really good job here, and, it, and it's quite well set for them now, I think. We've talked a lot about the England team. Quick word on South Africa, particularly... Uh, how two of their newbies were were the two guys who nearly kept them in the test match Peter Mann on debut brilliantly. he faced the second most balls by a debutant in the fourth innings of a test match and Rassi van der Dusen in his just his second test they're the two guys who have frustrated England the most given that half of South Africans players over the last couple of years have, have gone cold pack it is, and it's all been falling apart off the field they have a really really impressive talent pool yeah and my word I hope it continues to flow uh, because there's a lot of English guilt kicking around. Certainly, I feel it watching this series. Uh, naturally, you want England to do well, and you want England to win every game as England fans. But you, you feel like we've already bastardised half of their their cricket and culture anyway, and just grabbed it over here. Uh, and so, when you do see these young players coming through, or not even young, I mean, Milan's been playing for ten years, made ten thousand first class runs, then you're desperate for them to do well because you feel so guilty for having got rid of half the others, you know. Um, uh, Fafta said it at Fafta Plusi said it at the end we found an opener here um, you know Amla was a, was a player until six months ago De Villiers until a year ago Markram is a good young player but he's injured so for them to have found this fella who's technically sound averages 45 in first class cricket that's a real result for South Africa I think um, but it's so precarious, you know, and watching Philander is, is agonising fr- from a neutral's perspective because no one's going no to convince anyone that he's still not a top quality test match bowler. You know, I mean, he's, un- he's unhittable uh, in first innings, especially. Uh, and yet it, it feels like it's built on such shifting sands, you know, and, and I just hope that there are more to continue to come through just to absolve our own sense of responsibility as much as anything else. Well, these, that's the problem with these players. When they players are leaving, they're leaving when they're... Amla's a bit of an exception, but they're leaving at their almost their peak. I mean, Abbott is probably at his peak now. Morkel bowled as well uh, for South Africa in the previous summer um, over here before he signed for Surrey, as, as I've ever seen him bowl before. Uh, Olivier was just kind of finding his feet at test level and, and suddenly doing brilliantly. Oh, Harmer as well. I mean, the, these aren't players... I know Philander is nearing the end of his career, but that doesn't mean he's bowling any worse than he was three, four, five years ago. And that's the real shame of it, and not the shame of the players, but the disappointment of uh, of losing these players when they're still some of the best around. The, the other thing to continue to consider in the context of this series is that uh, the transformation targets that South Africa are supposed to hit, they have not been hitting. And it's taken as an average over the course of the international season I think but it's supposed to be uh, six players of colour I think including two black Africans and they've been at one and four in the uh, 
in the two tests so far. And they had an opportunity to make it. Yes, to bring in a what, Keegan Peterson yeah. they could have played instead of Peter Milan opening the batting. Uh, they've also got Bavuma, who I think is just about backfitting, probably could have played this test like kind of about 80%, but they kept in Razi van der Dussen. So those players, they might now have to leave possibly both of them out if they want to start getting back up close to that average. And then you start wondering again about, I guess, those two particularly, the the, the batters are going to find it hard to... So, so and so, so when Lunga and Gida gets back fit and he probably comes in for Anrik uh, Norcher and he's going to then struggle to get back inside because of that reason you start wondering about are their financial prospects going to be good enough playing just domestic cricket in the odd test match when there's an injury and they can afford to not hit a transformation target or are they going to also look for options in England which is really sad to be thinking that way but yeah me- meanwhile cricket South, South Africa projected to lose 5.8 million pounds over the next year as well which those is 300 million rand or something those targets are across all formats aren't they yes. so I think they and this isn't this is kind of a pragmatic a pragmatic move where you can have T20 series that are relatively inconsequential and and play lots of players of colour and black Africans and then get back up to the target. Now, is that really achieving what the, the target is there for in the first place? Perhaps not really. No, no, it's, it's a very, very complex and delicate one. Instinctively, considering how difficult it's been to administer and how much uh, uh, kind of resistance there has been across the, the, the spectrum of South African cricket, that sounds to me like a fairly reasonable balancing act personally uh, and especially if if this talent drain is exacerbated by the sense as Harmer said whether you b- believe it wholeheartedly or not Harmer said quite clearly my my route was was just being blocked off and I didn't feel like I could properly express myself as a top class cricketer blah 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 this has gone back to Peterson days and before if if this is the, the current way of doing it to me and this is not my my fight and I don't say this with any authority but instinctively it sounds like 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 a canny way of, of, of managing what is a very difficult and complex issue. Phil, what's your moment of the week? Yeah, moving swift, swiftly on, I like that, yes. Um, I don't actually really have one, but obviously the big the big story uh, has been has been the four-day cricket, uh, four-day test match debate, which has reared its head again. Uh, everyone's been asked about it, from <laughs> Virat to Sachin to Joe to... To, to every man and his dog. It's Root, not Harmon, I think. Yeah. Sorry? Root, not Harmon. Yes, sure. Well, Joe, Joe has been say asked. no one's asked me and, for and, my and will be yet. asked. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... So it would have to be that. I thought, I thought Virat's quote but was... What, 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 are they, what are they actually proposing? They're not just... Propo- well, we already have the odd four-day test. It's the idea that, that all it World mandatory. Test Championship matches will be four-day test matches. it becomes mandatory, yeah. So I would say that... Uh, this argument being put squarely back in, in into people's minds is is probably quite a significant moment uh, for Test cricket. The question is how how much energy there will be to to push this through. Um, uh, personally, I have I have mixed feelings on it. I'm not I'm not emotionally tied to five day cricket. Um, I can see the arguments for four day cricket in in the modern modern game. Uh, and we can go into those if we want to at this moment. But as an over overriding thought, I think to make it mandatory four day cricket without properly trialing this idea in big games over the next two years or so, I think you you can't reverse it. You can't go back from that. 
you know, once you once you sell off your public assets, you can't just go back again and renationalize them. Although Jeremy might argue argue against that, but you know, you know what I'm getting at, right? This is this is a fundamental, existential moment, really, for the Test match game, uh, and and if if we were to blunder into it uh, without due consideration and without properly trialing these these ideas and these games in big fixtures as well, then I think I think we we are. Uh, playing playing havoc with the most precious thing that we've got. It's quite complex, I think, because there are a lot of arguments going uh, both ways. And I think a lot of the arguments that have been said for five-day test cricket don't really stand if you scrutinise them at all. Um, and also, we have a very, very different perspective f- uh, watching our cricket in England, where we already we, we, we sell out most days of test cricket. Also, it's quite impractical to have longer days of test cricket just because of the light. But if you look outside... Uh, the big three, loads of test series are only two-match series. And one of the arguments for four-day test matches is that it is financially more sustainable to have more of them. Yeah. So if you're really, really worried about the long-term future of test cricket, you can see the argument for having more four-day tests. For me, that's the only reason that stacks up. And I don't know what the numbers are, and I'd be really interested to see what the numbers are. And oh, what, what? Sorry. On what savings the boards would make from having four-day tests rather than five-day tests, and the and the damage that five-day test matches are doing to some of the other nations. Because to me, as it stands, that it's negotiable if you want to have a four-day test. If both boards agree, that works for me. I'm I'm certainly not wedded. I, I don't feel particularly, tr- yeah, wedded traditionally to to five-day tests, like, like Phil was saying. But so I want that flexibility there. But to make it mandatory to me just makes no sense and obviously we've had a, a pretty good example today of, of, of a match that could have been ruined if this had been four day test rather than a five day test obviously teams would play differently and we can't say exactly how it would have played out but there's a good chance we wouldn't have had enough overs to make the game what it was uh, today um, and and one of the arguments I've seen being talked about is that it makes test cricket more appealing to, to fans I just don't buy that at all I don't really see how that, that stacks up I think Rob Key said he hasn't he hasn't heard anyone who doesn't like test cricket who he thinks would like it because it's four days rather than five and I I completely agree with that point of view. Yeah, I I I don't really buy it from like a sort of philosophical point of view. This I'm like, oh, this is four days now. It's for me. But I think you you would actually get more finishes like today if you played four day tests as the norm rather than five day tests. I mean, I think that um uh like that that that's so few tests go this late on day five. Maybe you'd argue that teams don't kind of deserve draws and those instances but thinking back to tests like the the test at the oval in the ashes uh which finished latish on day four with australia nowhere near a draw and that and that game kind of did fizzle out really because of the fast pace that games were being played at so i think you would get more like teams having to sort of like do things crazily to get a win or battling late on what would be day four to to get a win if you played four day test matches than you do now I know maybe they feel kind of heightened because of the five-day nature rather than four-day nature, but I think you would get the finishes themselves would be more regular in, or frequent, I mean, in four-day cricket than in five-day cricket. I I think if you had complete buy-in from players, administrators, coaches, groundsmen, crucially as well, then you could create a game whereby you, you bowl 100 overs a day, you're not scared of using floodlights if needs be uh, and you therefore complete a 400 over game as opposed to what it currently is what 450 so and and if you look at the numbers of games in the last two or three years that have finished within four days 
it's 60 something percent and if you look at the number of games that have finished within that no within that 400 over uh figure then it's it's up in the 85 90 percent so not many games go the full duration of 450 overs anymore moreover with that kind of consensus there would be the chance of more inventive and, and, and interesting cricket. I do, I do happen to think that because I think groundsmen would have to make pitches that are, that are a bit spicier. Captains would have to think slightly outside the box. Uh, overrates would have to improve. There would be less farting around, waiting for you know gloves to be run on and a drink every five minutes, and you know the bane of Bumble's life would be would be eased. And this that this that and the other. I happen to think that. There is a case to be made that the, the game itself. But can't we would, do those things first anyway? Possibly. Why, why? I don't. We seem to have skipped ahead to a point where we think we can do something where we've not even achieved the basic level of moving the game along. But at the moment, players have an enormous amount of power, and they can essentially do what they want. So if, if you if you lob off uh, what seven overs at the end of a day, and you've only bowled eighty three, then everyone just shrugs their shoulders and go and goes about their business, and they carry on again. And there's no real jeopardy attached to to bowling 12 overs an hour and so on and so on. But if there were... Well, the suspensions are captains, isn't there? But they don't yeah. seem to be enforced very... Also regularly. now, this point reductions but if, but in the World Championship. Point reductions in... Yeah, yeah. But, but if you were to say, if you don't hit your overs, then it's not just uh, a few points on a potential suspension, but you are... You lose significant run penalties within the game itself, say. Then there would be an incumbent reason to ensure that you get those 100 overs done in the day or 98 overs done in the day or whatever it may be. Um, so I can I can see these arguments, but it's pointless even beginning it, I don't think, unless there is absolute consensus buy-in from all the stakeholders in cricket, from the players downwards. And it's been interesting well, to see... Well, the players is the first sticking point, isn't totally. it? It's the first thing you said, totally. and immediately I thought, well, we're not going to get that. If well, the players were up Foley's for it... come out, Stokes, in the post-match interview, in the test... Did he? I yeah. didn't see that, yeah. You're well, not going to get a spin bowler being in favour of this. Yeah. Um, A.B. De Villiers gave an interview to our magazine. Now, he may be considered to be you know, dirty goods because he walked away from Test cricket twice. Uh, he gave an interview to our magazine a year and a half ago, um, and he said, and I've actually got it here, he likes the idea of four-day cricket, uh, four-day Test matches. He would believes it would bring about more positive cricket teams starting talking about a declaration around 400 rather than 600. Uh, and I'm 100% behind that in brackets. Um, when did England last get to 600? He, he, said, he said cricket, you know, can definitely become a bit more positive, a bit more exciting. You see opening batsmen being a bit more attacking. Blah, 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 blah. Now, so that's exactly why I'm against it. You don't get innings like fine, Dom Sibley's, right? Fine, and it's a fine. test, not just of batting. It's actually the bowling. Fine. So you you would have less, a few, you had fewer instances of bowlers having to bowl against a guy who's absolutely fine not getting out. And that's a real test of a bowler. And I think you would lose that, even if all those uh, those boxes are ticked. Sure. Well, okay. I I sat and watched 193 overs in searing heat in Sydney two years ago uh, when the Marsh brothers just they scored 260 runs for the loss of two wickets on day three of utter cloudless but that's the banality. Fault. Sure, but th- this is all part of the discussion as well. You know, grounds and would f- and, and you know you can get done, but for poor pitches. The MCG a week before that was was criticised as a poor pitch, but up the ante. Make sure the MCG doesn't have a Test match next year if if they get if 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 it's a poor but, pitch times two. So these kinds of things. But these are all stages that we could do before we got to the four four day test. Sure, but at the minute you're right. But at the minute there isn't any real energy for it because there's no there's no alternative. There's no kind of upland that, that anybody's 
envisioning here. Uh, and and as I say, w without that buy-in, it's just not going to happen. But we will have to accept, as we I think we do, that there are going to be large dead moments in a five-day cricket match that would possibly be slightly condensed by the notion of a four-day cricket match. And also on, on the Dom Sibley thing, I mean, he plays his bread and butter up until this winter has been four-day cricket where he scored, what, 700s last year in the county championship, all, all in, in games where you're saying that kind of batting wouldn't be able to, to flourish anymore. Like, I mean, he, he he's the example that it can, I guess, rather than... Although rather some pretty terrible pitches where everyone else is getting bowled out for 150 quite regularly, which moves the the game on so there there is more opportunity for but would, but 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 the point is that like that if if the pitches are more terrible doesn't that increase the need for a strong defensive technique and i mean if if it's kind of 250 plays 150 then the uh, the tech the uh, qualities required and like a defensive opening batsman become even more valuable don't they rather than lesser i, I take that if, if a bowler can just let the pitch do the work that's Something, but I, but I just think that the, the way cricket has gone, and as Phil's saying, it's 400 overs versus 450 overs. Uh, and I mean, they, they'd have extended hours of play, wouldn't they? They'd have an extra half hour at least to get through these overs compared to what they currently have. I, I just want to add, it, it's been interesting. It, it seems to be split, not split maybe, but there is more fav in favour voices lower down the food chain of cricket than there are at the top. <coughs> India, Indian voices, Australian voices have been pretty much uniformly against it from what I've seen. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think Mark Taylor was one of few Australian voices who was in favour, I believe. I think Cricket okay. Australia come out saying they're open to the idea I'm, of it. I'm not so much talking about what the, the authorities play, play, are saying. Within, yeah. talking about the players, really, and the ex-players who are still effectively players and they, you know, they're shoulder mm. to shoulder. Uh, but lower down the food chain, where money is not kicking around, where time is poor and players' loyalties are less secured. I'm talking about West Indies, I'm talking about New Zealand, mm. and so on and so on. Um, there has been more qualified uh, agreement or support for this idea at a nascent stage at this point. And that, to me, does make sense. I think Joe said right at the beginning, four-day cricket, four-day test match cricket for certain teams where both boards agree, there's value in that. Mm. I think there's a lot of value in that further down the line because... We, we watch West Indies cricket on TV and Test Match cricket and it is agonising. It's painful to watch when it's spread over five days and nobody's there and so on and so on. Um, a slightly more condensed game would be more appealing to the West Indies board. It should be more appealing to the West Indies players. It might be more appealing to a few hundred spectators and a few people watching it on the TV. The marquee games, your Ashes, your England at Indias and so on and so on... Um, it would be heartbreaking to see an Ashes Test match that is drawn after four days because uh, because we couldn't get that. Can, fifth you, imagine, day in. can you imagine the, re totally, the reaction? Totally. But when you go when you move down the line, and as you say, you know, it's already begin beginning to happen here and there. You know, Zimbabwe played a four day game. The England Ireland have, game against yeah. India was four day against England was four days. I think there is some value in that going further down the line. I think we're, we're all kind of on the same page. We're all kind of saying that there should be <laughs> flexibility to it yeah. rather than it being mandatory, right? But I, I, yeah, I think it's worth emphasising though the starkness of some of these financial realities. I mean, I think Keshav Maharaj put it quite well in, in a post-match press conference when asked about four-day test cricket. He was like, I just want to play test cricket kind of three-day, four-day, five-day time. He doesn't care. But the, the subtext being that that <laughs> might not be the option kind of for that much longer. I mean, you, you look at Ireland having to, well, ca ca cancel a test match against Bangladesh because it's just not financially feasible for them to play it and I think so the while, while I haven't seen the numbers kind of set down I think the argument for that fifth day is you have to pay for 
everyone to come back there's the the stewards the catering the the whoever and mm. not able to charge that much for for tickets because it's like rare rarely does it get to that point and it's set up to be an exciting finish and even then you can't charge as much you would for the other day so they are loss making exercises fifth days which i don't think the first four days are and still wouldn't be if you went to four day tests uh or if, if you played a scheduled four day test match i think is the but i but i i get that you you, you want your ashes marquee series probably to be five tests five days i can see that point but i can also see how if the way to get everyone on board is to say that especially in the world test championship if you if you, if you can get to a point where everyone can agree that every world test championship series will be three four-day test matches that to me is preferable than a world test championship where people play series of different lengths including some two test series which so the ashes no, would sit outside the world test championship from what you're saying possibly or it could, could it even be something like three four-day tests and two five-day tests i don't know joe joe what's your moment of the week uh my moment of the week was one um one silver lining from a very uh dark and gloomy tour of australia from new zealand uh obviously got absolutely thrashed out there had a had a tour of kind of Ashes tour proportions there where But in three tests. But in three tests where yeah, I mean everyone got injured, everyone got ill, Kane Williamson missed the last test. But yeah, one nice moment at the end was Ross Taylor beating Stephen Fleming's record for most test runs by a New Zealander. Um he gave an emotional press conference uh, after beating that record and said that was one of the things that Martin Crow, who was his mentor, um spoke to him about and said this should be on your list of targets. Um, that you should be able to achieve because you've got the you've got the talent to do that and he's 35 I think he's 36 in a couple of months um, and he's had an astonishing career really I mean it's, I interviewed him just before the World Cup and we talked about the eye operation he had I think in 2016 and for the year or two prior to that he basically he, he couldn't see the ball when it was when he was playing under floodlights still had a reasonable record considering and then as soon as he had this operation to fix what I think was called surfer's eye I don't think that's the medical term but uh, and sorted out his eyesight. He just had this phenomenal couple of years in ODI cricket leading up to the World Cup and a very good um, time in Test cricket as well. And he's, he, I think he's one of the most liked players in world cricket. Um, he's had some pretty tough times. Obviously, he had that stint as New Zealand captain, which ended rather unceremoniously when he was dumped for Brendan McCullum. Um, but I think most would agree that was a good thing for New Zealand cricket and partially because of the way Taylor dealt with it. He didn't throw his toys out the pram. Uh, he didn't go complaining to the press. He didn't write books about players complaining about teammates. Uh, he just got on with it and scored more runs for his country than anyone else has done. Overall, though, it wasn't a great tour for New Zealand. Uh, the, the gap between the two teams was probably larger than everyone hoped for and expected. Is that just because Australia were really, really good? They're a really good side at home, particularly. Um, but yeah, they they really got all bases covered now. I mean, Joe Burns did a pretty solid job at the top of the order. Warner, obviously, at home, we know we're going to get that. Labashain is now seemingly the second best batsman in the world. I mean, who saw that one coming? Uh, yeah, so it was, it was a kind of perfect storm, really, for New Zealand, where everything went wrong for them, and they came up against a very strong Australian side, who uh, I'm glad the Ashes isn't next winter, because uh, I think it could be pretty bleak. Um, but Wait, England got India next winter, which is well, that is, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably more bleak. Uh, yeah, although I think expectations ahead of an India tour are, are, are almost nil. Whereas with okay. the Ashes, there's always that hope, there's that expectation that they can go and kind of do the Aussies in their own backyard. But well, one bit of positive news for England and Australia is Tom Batten and Liam Livingston both hit rapid half centuries at the top of the order in the last couple of days. Batten hit 16 ball 50. Uh, is that the second fastest in BBL history? Yeah. Second fastest, and also second fastest by an Englishman in all T20 cricket behind uh, Marcus Truscossic's 13 ball 50 
uh, back in 2010, I think. Oh, 13 ball 50 in 2010. Yeah, I know. Yeah, ahead of his time. It was uh, some of the shots that were amazing. Yeah, first ball hit for six. I mean, so it's a reduced eight overs, so he had full license. Not that he, not that he normally needs it, but yeah, first ball for six. Third ball from a fast bowler reverse swept for four. Then five consecutive sixes off the off spinner. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous and yeah, what what an unbelievable talent. Yeah, I'm fascinated by how he goes in the IPL. I think he's got a real chance of putting in like an unarguable claim for a T20 World Cup squad. Yeah, but spot. Uh, I mean, I th- I think. You hope they almost if if he does struggle, you hope they don't hold it against him too much because it is, it's well. Firstly, I mean the quality is high, but it's the 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 pitches are slightly different. I think having done it in these pitches in Australia should be a a real feather in his cap. And I think, I mean it's it's hard to say it now when we have so many options, but I think that with how exciting it is about him, it's going to be hard to leave him out of that squad at least. Mm. Do, do you have a moment of the week? Not asked. Oh yeah, uh, well, after we talked about how exciting the test watch stuff, it's a bit mundane. Talk about one bowler overstepping on on day two, but but <laughs> so it looked like a key moment at the time when Stuart Broad nicked off. I think Razi Bandadusen, and then a replay showed he'd overstepped it. But I think the subtext is that um, he'd overstepped the ball before and not been called. Sam Curran had overstepped Scuffers before and not been called. And I think uh, between lunch and tea on that day, there were twelve oversteps not called, and the one that was called was the one they looked up on a replay. So. To some point of view, you've got to look at the England players, how are they training? They regularly overstep uh, when they're bowling in the nets, which is obviously going to, those habits will breed them to the same thing in, in a game. But they're just it's just bizarre that it hasn't been enforced worldwide, this look, the third umpire looking at the thing. Trialling it in the West Indies games? Right? Yeah. But, but, but it's just odd because they just keep trialling it. They trialled it uh, India when the West Indies went to India, they trialled it and it worked fine. And the trials seemed to go quite well. That's yeah, the, yeah. It's, like, what, it's like, yeah, it works yeah. again. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's try it one more time just to be sure. Uh, it's, it's just odd, especially because in that session you had the the TV producer in the commentator here saying like, yeah, another one, another one. And it's like, that could just be the third umpire to the to the on-field umpire in that stage. I think what was, all, what was also odd in that instance was that you had the uh, England dressing room must have seen and or heard this was happening and not feeding it to the field like you just need to come back a, a bit so that it kept happening even though it was going for quite an extended period of time uh yeah just it was, it was just a very old passage of play but something that i think reveals something that does need to just change for good basically oh it's a classic case of cricket just making things so much more complicated than they need to this is a, one that's easily sorted out and everyone would understand what's going on just get it done yeah i i think the umpires are getting away with it a little bit uh, they, they don't currently use the technology, so they still should be checking the no ball oh, line. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And there's one by Stokes that was like not far off Muhammad Amir 2010 levels in terms of how far over it was. It was miles over, so they, that wasn't given no ball. You're just clearly not checking. Yeah, I guess the thing is, is that I can I can still see why they don't because Adam Voges in 2016 was a bolt clean bold, and the umpire called it a no ball, thinking the ball had overstepped. So uh, and the replays really hadn't overstepped, and they then couldn't give them out because the umpire had called it so maybe that affected it in some way so I can see I can see why they don't even when it's really obvious because especially it's, it's, it's in a way not a great angle to look at it from especially when the line gets a bit scuffed up I quite like Sean Pollock had the suggestion on commentary that the square leg umpire moves to mid on yeah, and, uh, and looks idea. at it yeah I know it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like why, why is no one saying that well, it just solves it the square leg umpire never really needs to check run outs anymore no or some things yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, what a way to end the show. <laughs> Thanks, guys. On an upswing. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a moment of the week, yes? Uh, another yeah, no, yeah, another no actually, ball you want to talk I do about? Actually, uh, Stokes' post match interview. So, A, he he, he defended five five day tests 
and also he wanted to give the player of the match award to Dom Sibley, which was really nice. Um, he's he's, he's getting quite a lot though, isn't he? It's fair enough. Yeah, you can share <laughs> them around. That is that is fair. Well, thanks guys. It's been a been a great show. Just a reminder to to listeners to claim your case of ten beers sent to your doorstep for under a fiver. So go to www.beerfifty2.com forward slash wisdom. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, tell your friends, and if you're feeling extra nice, leave us a five star review on the podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.